Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations podcast episode 53 with my colleague and uh, doctoral program peer, Dr. Neil Cannon. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. It's so good to see you. Yeah, you too. We're doing this via Skype because you're in Colorado making people's dreams come true. And I'm here in Missoula, Montana, trying to do the same. <laughs> As you always do. You know, I use your Sexplanations program in one of the classes I teach every single week. You're amazing. Thank you for doing that. What do your students think? They think you're a rock star. Oh, I like it. <laughs> good. Keep it up. That serves me. Uh, so I have some questions for you about our careers as sexologists, and I want to do this in honor of Ben, Donna, Paul, and the Millers, who are patreon.com slash explanations podcast supporters. Are you ready for me? I am ready. Okay. I'm ready. Let's do this. So these questions were asked of me four years ago on this Explanations YouTube channel, uh, the 10th Ask Lindsay episode. And because you are a sexologist and have really followed me through my whole career as a sexologist, I was like, oh, I want to talk to Neil. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, what inspired you to pursue sexology? Well, I went into this field as a second career because I wanted to work with people that had been sexually abused and traumatized. And so that was like the impetus to get me started down this field. And um, then, of course, as I got more into it, I do that work, but I also do so much more. But that's what got me started. Yeah, because am I allowed to say what you were before? Sure. Yeah, you were a a rock star businessman. <laughs> I was the chairman and CEO of Aspen Marketing Group, which is headquartered in Chicago today. And I did that for about 25 years. Yeah, yeah. fancy. And then we met at our program, at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. And I think we weren't in the same cohort, but our trimesters overlapped a bunch. And so we ended up doing work with each other and uh, graduated at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you were always a big part of that experience for me. Aww. Aww. Yeah, despite the fact that I'm quite a bit older than you, you were actually just a, a little bit ahead of me, I think, in our cohort. And so yeah. I, I always looked up to you as one of the big kids. <laughs> <laughs> at 23. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> oh, it was so fun. So you decided to get into this work because you wanted to do sexual abuse prevention or sexual abuse intervention? You know, by the time I was in my 30s, I started to have a sense for the impact that sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse has on people. And it just really moved me to want to do something different where I could make a change in people's lives. And, you know, that's very different from the life of a CEO. And yeah. um, so I made the move. I shocked my board of directors, my friends, my family. When I said I was going to become a sex therapist, nobody believed me. They kept waiting for the punchline. Like it was going <laughs> to Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it was very true. And off I went back to school. No regrets. I love my work. Oh, I'm so glad you did it, too. Because I... I hear stories about what you're up to and how you're changing lives, and we've helped each other over the years. And I, I, anyway, I feel so grateful that you're you're part of this discipline with me. Mm, thank you. It was kind of interesting for me. I mean, the same work habits that I had as a uh, CEO actually carried right over into my work in this field. Uh, you know, I, I 
I always knew how to work, do the work part of work. <laughs> and so it made it really easy for me to do the practice management part of running a practice and teaching and supervising and all the things I do. <laughs> this yeah. is why you're successful. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it carried over. Is there anything that you wish you knew besides that before starting your career? Mm. Well, one of the huge surprises for me, there were a couple, actually. Like, one was... You know, so I'm moving into this field as a sex therapist, which is mental health. And I never had a sense before I got into it that I'd be working with like a lot of people with suicide ideation and self-harming behavior and things like that. So that was like a real eye opener. And because mm-hmm. I started working with sexual minorities as part of my niche within the world of sex therapy, you know, there's really high rates of suicide in transgender people, sexual minorities, LGBT youth. And so I, I got immersed in training around suicide prevention really early in my career. And that, so that was a big surprise. I think the other thing that was a big surprise, of course, I am a sexologist. However, I get, the way I get paid is as a sex therapist. And So as a sex therapist, our work is really lonely. Like the work we do, I'm sitting in a room with people. And so that's kind of was my vision for what it would be like. Oh, I'm with people all day and I'm an extrovert. So that is like important to me. But when you're actually doing sex therapy, it's very one-sided. It's not really that, it's not a relationship the way we think about relationships. I'm working and I'm working on the client's issue, whatever that is, and helping them with their therapeutic goals and we talk completely about them and never about me. And so it just kind of gets lonely. So those were my two big surprises when I transitioned into mental health. I really appreciate hearing that from you. I don't think that I remember getting any suicide prevention education at our school. That must have been another program for you. It was. Where I got it was in my marriage and family therapy program. There we because go. I was um, I worked in a free clinic or sliding scale clinic when I first started and that's how I got my hours in order to become licensed as a MFT. And that's where I got my suicide training was like <laughs> on the job. Right, but it's so important. Right. And the piece about it being lonely, I've never heard anyone say, but I have felt that from the beginning of God, I would love to have co-workers. I also am an extrovert, maybe on the more ambivert cusp of things, but I have a really hard time these days working with clients because it is taking somebody's world into your heart and then it's so it's so lonely because I there's no one I am sharing that with because of confidentiality, respect for the clients, and so I'm just learning amazing amounts about other human beings and having interpersonal relationships that I can't share. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't feel so lonely hearing that <laughs> you have a similar experience. Yeah, it's really crazy, isn't it, right? We hear in very intense stories, very touching stories, very wonderful stories, very sad stories, like all day long, and then we can't mm-hmm. tell anybody. Yeah. Right? It's just like stuff we all did. We'll go to our graves with it. Is there anything that you have come up with to problem solve that? Well, I think it's really important for a therapist to have their own therapist, mm-hmm. right? And so I that's where I can 
actually talk freely as to my own therapist who's also under the same confidentiality rules and laws that I am. And so I know it's safe for me to talk about things in there, even though I still don't name names of clients, but I can at least talk about my experience and the way these experiences made me feel. That's so good. Yeah. Okay. uh, Next question. You talked a little bit about how your board of directors felt when you expressed your interest in career change. How do other people react when you tell them about your job? And is there any opposition to the field? So that's an interesting question. I am so proud of my work and my profession that I'm happy to lead with it when I talk about, you know, when I'm meeting people. And I just feel really good about it the way I share it and the way I feel about it. And so I get very little, you know, funny remarks or pushback or people are like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. That's kind of what I get Mm -hmm. most of the time. But I think part of that is because I genuinely, I think I, I send that message when I, when people ask me what I do, that like, I've got the greatest job in the world. And that's what I want people to hear and feel for me when, when we talk about that. Oh, oh, I love it. Okay. So what is your elevator speech? Oh, my elevator speech. I'm a sex and gender therapist. And I also teach at the University of Michigan, and I also teach at Denver Family Institute. And it's the greatest job in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's perfect. I have gotten a lot of different responses over the years, for sure. And not all of them are lovely like yours. But I think that part of that is because I've been part of creating a lot of the sex positivity that is there now. And so before, when I would tell people I'm a clinical sexologist, a lot of them would want to hear clinical psychologist. And so they would change the conversation to psychology or some of them thought that it was an invitation to have sexual interest in me or whatever that was. And now it's certainly changed. But I think you and I and our colleagues have had to do a lot of work to establish it as a career option that one would choose because it is so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're very fortunate. Aren't we? Yeah. Mm. It is so good. So what do you find most enjoyable about your job and what do you find most challenging? Most enjoyable is definitely being able to make a difference in people's lives. So whether it's in my room, right, we we therapists, we call this our room, which is actually where I'm at right now. You can see my library behind me. This is where I see clients. And so being able to make a difference with the people that come in into our room, but also because I teach and because I supervise and supervision in the mental health field is really different from supervision in um, the workplace. So supervision in the mental health field is something that everybody goes through to become licensed or certified. It's a formal mentoring process. So because about half my time is teaching and supervising, not only do I get to support the people that are in my room, my own clients, but I also am able to touch and impact people through my students and supervisees across the country and sometimes across the globe. So that feels really good. I'm touching lots of different family systems. And um, so I think that's, to me, the best part. And you were doing individual speaking engagements at one point, too, weren't you? I do. It's not a big part of my time or my life. Most of mine is more clinical teaching other students um, or people in the process of getting certified by ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Do you hold a position with them currently? I know you have in the past. Yeah, so I'm the immediate past chair of bylaws. I'm the section leader for the state of Colorado and have been for the last decade. I um, 
am on the conference committee for Denver, which will be the first time the annual conference has been here in 25 years. And it sold out. We had a waiting list of like 175 people to get in. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we're super excited about that. It's going to be a great conference. And that's here in June of 2018. And then um, I'm the incoming bylaws chair for ASECT. And that's a two-year term. Okay, well, can we go back to the conference for a moment in terms of attendance? Can you not make it larger so that everyone on your waiting list and Dr. Lindsay Doe can attend? <laughs> so what happens is, you know, we book space based on how many people came last year. And so we planned on, we had less than 700 people last year. So we planned on 700 people this year. And that's, you know, we got hotel rooms around that, meeting space around that. And the hotel is just completely sold out. There's just no space to add more meeting rooms. So, But it's Denver. Can't you go to adjacent <laughs> hotels and conference centers and have, you know, breakout sessions? And Okay, fine. <laughs> That's fine. I just love it. I've never been to ASECT. And Denver is a really affordable place for me to fly in and out of. Mm-hmm. I'll fly down to Denver next June, and you and I can fly to Philadelphia together and go to the annual conference in Philly. And if you really play your cards right, I'm sure I could get you a gig in there speaking. Oh, fancy. Wouldn't we be well, lucky to have <laughs> Dr. Lindsay Doe speak at an ASECT conference? That would be fun. I love how you want me to fly to Denver first to fly to Philly as if I don't have to be on a plane from Montana to Philly for Because it would, it, would <laughs> it would make my trip shorter. Oh, (laughs) that's fair. We could get a headphone splitter and play uh, some sort of dance ballads. So you want me to fly there and then Philadelphia. I want you to fly to Denver so that we can fly to, to Philadelphia together so I won't be bored. And then to your idea, we'll listen to, you know, your playlist and my playlist. And I bet they're pretty different. You think? I bet. Okay, well, what do you listen to these days, Neil? Oh my gosh! Well, I'm I'm still I'm kind of stuck in classic rock and roll, you know, from the sixties. Why 60s would you and say 70s. that that's not me? I don't know because you're a different age, and I'm Im- Im- imagining you listening to like techno or <laughs> oh <laughs> my goodness. Okay, know. first of all, how old are you? <laughs> I am sixty-one. I was born in nineteen fifty-seven. Sixty-one. 61 and beautiful. I am 36, and I like classical rock. Tell me <laughs> tell me the, the names of the bands that you're referring to. That will help me more. Oh, my gosh. So, like, I love everybody from, like, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to Led Zeppelin. Okay, why can't I like those, too? We could totally jam out to those. We could do that? Okay. All right. Yeah, Denver to Philly. Counts another Rolling reason. Stones. Yeah. It's happening. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, ASECT, because that's where the national one is happening, is in Philly? Yep. Philadelphia. In June. June of 2019. Maybe. I have spent a lot of time in Philly because that's where my father's family is, and so we would go there twice a year on a road trip from Hudson, Ohio, load up in a station wagon. They would put all the hard suitcases down in the back with the seats folded flat, and then they would blow up these pool toys, the flat ones, and my brother and I would sleep in the back, and then they would drive the straight eight hours through the night until we got to Philly and hung out with my grandparents. It's a pretty good system. I think so. We would stop in Somerset, 
Pennsylvania, I think is where it was. And there was this giant uh, kind of circular square in an outlet mall. Circular square. That was great. It's an outlet mall. (laughs) And it had a circular brick structure. And so they would put my brother on one side of it. And they would put me directly opposite of him. And to try and wear us out, they would have us chase each other around the circle until one caught the other. Excellent parenting, I think. Right? Yep. So clever. Okay. So what was the most challenging part of your job? The most challenging part of my work, I believe, is everybody's ready to change at a different pace. Mm. And so being patient with people um, as they prepare to change is, I guess, I don't know if challenging is really the right word, but it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of compassion to just help people through the process of getting ready to change, preparing to change, and then ultimately, hopefully changing so they live the life they want. You know, because at the end of the day, everybody just wants to be happy. And I want my clients to be happy. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> I find that really challenging, too. And my patience is less than yours. So I'm like, eh, you're not ready to change. I c- I'm not ready to wait. So when you when you're ready to do what I have to offer, then then call me. We'll we'll go from there. And in the meantime, you can go to Denver and hang out with Dr. <laughs> Neil Cannon, who will have patience for your process. <laughs> That's funny. It's so true though. It's uh, in my own life as well. That I think they say it's about eight months from when you move to pre-contemplation, that stage where you don't even realize you need a change to actually acting upon it is so grueling, the preparation and the thinking about it and preparing more. But I'm really glad that even though it's challenging to you, you do it anyway, because people need nice sex therapists like you. People need, you know, people need to be supported and, and met where they are, wherever that is. And it's okay. It's just people are at different places in their journey. And our job is to ride with them on that journey and go side Mm. by side in a way that maybe hopefully we get a step ahead of them and they can kind of catch up and then they get a little ahead of us and we catch up and we make it all work. (sighs) You have such a nice outlook on the world. Mm, Thanks. That's really sweet. So in addition to your patience and your seeking of therapy for yourself, just that personal maintenance, what other skills do you use the most in our field? I think kindness is an intention. And so Mm. for me, when I'm with, well, hopefully everywhere in my life, I try to show up as being kind. And whether that's with clients or students or supervisees or just, you know, people at McDonald's or whatever, I try to come from a place of kindness and that takes intention because it's really easy sometimes to get irritated at bad drivers or pick your thing. So I guess kindness is a skill that I've worked to develop. I'm a lot different today as a therapist than I was as a business person, but I've worked at it. You know, I've been working at it for 15 years. Has it been that long? Pretty much. Yeah. Are you counting how long it's been since we got our doctorate or are you referring to something earlier than that? Um, well, since I started my journey into the world of healthcare, it's been about 15 years for me. Yeah. Go us. Yeah. Go, go you for the intentional kindness. I am inspired by that to do a better job. And I will do that one day at a time with you in mind. You're in my mind a lot, actually. I think about your um, lovely bald head regularly Aww. because I see my cohort losing their hair. 
And I'm like, if they knew Neil, they would have no fear because he, it looks so good. And then I also think about you when I want to open a school to train sexologists. And I'm like, oh, how could I get Neil involved? What if I just named the school after Neil? <laughs> then, then maybe he would help me. <laughs> You're sneaky. So I'm like, oh, yeah, it's called the Dr. Neil Cannon School of Sex Sexology. It'd be hard not Academy, to... I think, is what I came academy. up with. It's an academy. It'd be hard for me to not stop by once in a while, wouldn't it? Right? <laughs> yep, yep, oh, yep. You're so sneaky. <laughs> so next question. How much education or training is required to meet legal certification or licensing requirements? And are there specific programs this person who's asking the question should be looking for? Yeah, so the first part is, in order, to, if your goal is to become an ASEC certified sex therapist, then the first step is you need to have a master's degree in counseling or psychology or marriage and family therapy or something along those lines or social work. Mm -hmm. And then in that process, then you'll get licensed as a mental health professional in your state. And then somewhere in that process, you can start the process of becoming ASEC certified. And as a sex therapist or an educator or a counselor, and those are three pretty different things. Um, and what I'm really speaking to is more of the therapist track than the counselor or educator track because they're a little bit different. And then what happens is once you're starting the process of ASEC certification, you need 90 classroom hours of sex education or sexuality education related to therapy. And then you need 60 hours of sex therapy, like training, practicum stuff, which means you're actually doing the work and then under supervision. And then you need 50 hours of actual supervision hours where you're seeing another, you're seeing 350 hours worth of clients during that 50 hours of supervision. Yeah. So it's a lot, it's a process and it's, it takes time and money and commitment. And there's, and the great news is once you've done it, there's only 700 ASEC certified sex therapists in the entire world. And to put that into context, there's probably over 100,000 licensed psychologists just in the United States. So it's right. very specialized. And there's only and qualified. Yeah. And there's only 120, I think, of us supervisors in the whole world for, of ASEC. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. So ASEC, by the way, if anyone wants to hear or read what Neil just said in writing on your own time, A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. Yep. And there's a whole section, if you go to the section under certification, all the details of what I just summarized is right there in black and white. And if anybody wants help, like if, you know, I'm, I'm all about having more and better sex therapists in the world because we really need them. And so if anybody just needs help, like to get on a path, they're welcome to email me or call me and I'm more than happy to help folks. Ooh, Neil, this is how we, we get you to do the school <laughs> because then you don't have to send any emails. You just have the school where we train all the people. Will it be in the beautiful place of Montana where you live so we can come go and hike and fish and do those things? You know what I want it to be is in three different places around the world. So there's a Tokyo location and a Paris location and maybe a Denver location to make it really easy for you. I like it. And then people just rotate so that they're not having such an erotocentric education. They're learning about cultures everywhere. So I guess we need to choose a less metropolitan area. I love your vision. Some of it, but 
Thank you. I've been working on it for a really long time. Yeah. Is there high demand for sexologists? So here's where it's a little tricky, right? We have sexologists, which is the scientific study of sexual attitudes and behavior. Mm -hmm. So a beautiful background and training for sex therapists. I think one of the challenges in, quote, in sexology is how do you make a living as a sexologist? And I think Me. You, are, yeah, you are an amazing <laughs> sexologist, right? And you're like this, you know, this special being. And so I think there's this practical piece. So if people can figure out how to make a living as a sexologist like you have, mm -hmm. that's fabulous. That's great. We need more. And for your average everyday person who wants to make a living in this field, sex therapy is a pretty good way to go if they have the desire to be a therapist. But I think it's an, important to kind of think about these are two kind of different things that go together, but they're kind of different. Yeah, so true. What would you not be doing if you were not those things? Oh, that's so easy. Or did I ask it correctly? What would you be doing if you were not doing those things? Yeah, like what would I be doing for a living if I wasn't a yeah. sex therapist and, yeah. and teacher and all that stuff? Oh, it's easy. I'd be the head coach for the Denver Broncos. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you would. I would. I would. I'd be wearing orange every day. I'd be walking around, hanging out with John Elway, you know, patting the boys on the backsides and, come on, team, go. Score Do you have down. that skill set? <laughs> well, not to, I don't have the skill set to coach the Broncos, but I, I do uh, have the desire. The, the ambition is there. <laughs> All right, two more questions. Do you have any recommendations on where I can find out more about sexology? And is there anything else I should know about the field? Hmm. Well, where to find out more about sexology? That's a great question. You know, we have learning institutions like Patty Britton, Sex Coach U. That's a great place to start. You know, we have great books on the subject. I guess that's how I'd probably start. And anything else? We should know about the field? I think if you need to make a living, you need to really be strategic about how are you going to make a living once you've gotten all your degrees in sexology. And I think it's also important to know that, like, this field isn't easy for everybody, right? Because there's there's a stigma being a sex anything. And so you have to come into this, like, really grounded. And this is who I am. And this is what I do. And this is what I stand for. And this is where I'm headed. Mm, I like this. The first one definitely shows off what a business person you are. Hmm. <laughs> like, think about how to financially support yourself. And in my mind, I'm like, just have fun <laughs> and eat broccoli. Oh, And eat broccoli. That's great. <laughs> well, I, I definitely don't have all of the managerial and the, the organizational business skills that you do. And I think that we've both gotten to different places but have – a really high sense of happiness and f personal fulfillment with what we do. For me, it's a passion, I think, for you as well. You can you can do it as a business, but for me, it's so much about civic engagement and serving my community and saying it, whatever cost it is to me, this is how I fulfill my purpose sure. in this world. And, well, rarely yeah. does anybody go into our field for the money, right? I can make a lot more, I can make a <laughs> yeah. lot more money as a CEO. In the business world. Or the coach of the Broncos. Right? Or the coach of the Broncos. Right? But there is a passion that we bring to this. And, you know, I think we do it to make people's lives better one way or another. Mm, I like that. 
And I like hearing how you got here in the first place because I don't think I ever knew that story. So um, we do a, a weekly segment called The Main Squeeze. Feel your giggles if you're able. Main Squeeze. Where we do group giggles together. Oh, nice. And I would like to do those as kind of a moment of silence for the people who, whose stories we heard that inspired us to be here and do better jobs, but also the the stories that we hear in our jobs and those we haven't heard yet. So I will just say start, and then if you can hold your pubococcygeus muscles until I say stop, and we'll just have that moment of silence and exercise at the same time. We'll, we will feel the strength of our communities in our crotch. <laughs> Can I tell you a really quick, funny story first? Yes, That's very please. irrelevant. So I had a really complex afternoon, and then I knew that you and I were going to be on this. So I mm-hmm. had to go from session after session after session right into here. And before we even started this call, I had to pee so bad. And so now we're going to do kegels with me, like, about to burst. So this is going to be a, <laughs> no, a really no. interesting next 60 seconds or however long we do this. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's it's okay to self-care and say, Lindsay, I gotta pee. <laughs> Let's do kegels first. I've survived this long. And besides, now you've got me dreaming about coaching the Broncos again. So Yeah, yeah. good. Okay. Well, we'll think about all, all of our passions and all of our people. Um, and I'll hold it for about uh, 20 seconds. Ready? Go. Okay. One last thing before we send you to the bathroom and on with your really busy day. Uh, a sextra credit assignment. Assignments are not always bad, so here's some sextra credit. That we give to the listeners here on the Sexplanations podcast that they can do between episodes. Do you have any ideas? Oh, you're asking me what this listener should do? Yeah. Right now between episodes? Yeah. Oh. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, And you and I, we can do this exercise as well, whatever it is that you assign. Okay. Catch the important people in your life doing things right. And if you catch your lover doing things right, you'll have more sex and better sex. I like it. So you just want us to catch them. We don't have to positively have to. We don't need to positively reinforce them. Catch them doing things right, and then it would be lovely if you noticed that out loud or in a note. Okay. That's beautiful. Yeah, like I really appreciated the way you did blah, blah, blah. That will get you laid. (laughs) I like how you're reclaiming the word catch because so often it's associated, in, in sexuality especially, with things that the world finds deviant or destructive and I I love that we're going to change, we're going to spin it make it into a positive good, thanks for being on this Explanations podcast thanks for having me, it's so good to see you you're so, you too, you're so special I'm so grateful for everything you do oh Neil, you mean a lot to me too and it's been wonderful being there for each other over the years and being able to, to call you with questions or support and 
hear how we're growing up. We're getting, getting there. better. <laughs> Slowly but surely. It's wonderful. Awesome. Thank you also to Callie from Cinema Studios and Cinema Studios to Complexly for production and Count Boogie for the jingles and Cora and Paro, I'm Still Learning. 